All right, so we are in our, our series here on the women of and in the church. And within our context, we've been talking about the three primary words, the foundational words uh, that we have laid for this context of women in the assembly. And the first word that we talked about was that word submission. Uh, the idea here, drawing from 1 Corinthians 11 and the, the, the uh, traditional exhortation of Paul unto head coverings within the assembly. And we recognize that that was something which was cultural and traditional and outward manifestation of what was intended to be an inward disposition of the women in the assembly, which was that they would be in a posture of submission. And we recognize toward the end of that, Paul says, if any man uh, um, ha- uh, be in contention, we have no such custom, neither the of God. So he was saying that the, the operative point of the teaching was not actually intrinsically head coverings on women, but it was rather that which the head coverings on women externally was intended to reflect internally. And so uh, women in the assembly, that first foundational contextual word was the idea of submission. And then we talked about this concept of shamefacedness and the idea of shamefacedness being reflected um, as a contrast between men who are to uh, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And we saw there a contrast between, perhaps, we talked about a p- couple of different possibilities, but primarily the idea of, of a contrast between men who, in another context, might be lifting up hands unto some sort of argument or, 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 or to some sort of uh, um, uh, uh, physical physical. Um, Agreements, but rather they should lift up holy hands unto the idea of uh, praying uh, together. And then likewise, the ladies, the women in the assembly should adorn themselves in shamefacedness and sobriety with the essence of that point being that it is the hidden man of the heart. It is the virtue from within that becomes the operative um, reflection within the assembly so that it is not your external externalities, whether that be um, your wealth or your beauty, that are the things that you are drawing, that, that, that our women are drawing attention to, but rather it ought to be their virtue. And so that is the, uh, the essence or the lowest um, um, foundational reflection of shamefacedness is that women are adorning or presenting themselves in a manner that magnifies their virtue above their physical or, or material attributes. And then we started talking about silence. And this is a third word that we see in... Um, uh, the, the last two are both in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Um, so we saw in verse 9, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So the manifestation of, uh, that, that, that others should see in you in the assembly should be a manifestation of good works. Thus that should be the thing that, that, that is um, most evident and that is the, the expression of same, shamefacedness and sobriety. And then we see this idea, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. And we carried that over into 1 Corinthians 14. And we were talking last time about the context for this. And remember 1 Corinthians 14, the entire context of 1 Corinthians 14 is that of speaking in tongues, as Paul is emphasizing the gifts. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about this idea of spiritual gifts, um, with Paul acknowledging, the, the as we talked about even Sunday night, uh, the diversity of gifts. And how one person and one gift cannot say to another gift that they are not needed. But then he said at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 that we should desire spiritual gifts that we may edify, but he would show us a more excellent way. That gives way into 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on charity. The more excellent way is that anything that we're doing, regardless of our gift, that it is um, distributed among the saints, it is disposed of in a manner that is above all things charitable, where we are not comparing ourselves, we're not exalting ourselves, we're not uh, um, uh, um, judging one another, uh, even as it relates 
relates to the nature of our giftings or our lack thereof uh, within the church or, or the nature of the gifting that we have. And then he particularly focuses in then in 1 Corinthians 14 on this idea of tongues. And he says that it is significantly more superior that a man would prophesy than that he would speak in tongues, recognizing tongues here to be speaking in an unknown tongue and prophecy being the idea of of speaking in the native language, the known language, particularly those things that are intended to edify the church. And that's what we saw when we looked at the nature of prophecy. That prophecy, he, verse 3 says, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. So what is prophecy? In this context, we're not talking about telling the future. That is not what prophecy is, and that is not what the gift of prophecy is. So when you're talking with people from other contexts, other church systems and such, and they'll talk about people that prophesy, um, digging into a little bit of what that means, sometimes people will speak of this as it relates to foretelling the future. Others, they'll speak about what they call words of knowledge and words of faith, uh, things that have actually been manipulated and twisted and kind of perverted in our culture. But the idea that somebody has something to say in the Lord that is intended to edify, exhort, or comfort the body of Christ. And that is the idea of prophecy. And so there are many among us uh, who, who might have the gift of prophecy, not that you are telling the future and not that you have some sort of special insight from the Lord. Most people, when they talk about a word of faith or a word of knowledge, what they are saying, kind of in the um, um, Sarah Young, Jesus calling type way, God is telling me things and I'm telling you what God is telling me. Mm, that's not really what we see here as prophecy. What we see here is prophecy is the idea that there is someone who has something that the Lord has laid on their heart. It's not that I have been given a message for you from God, but it's that the Lord has been teaching me from His Word, and now I am going to exhort, comfort, or edify you with the thing that He has been teaching me. Uh, And it may be that you're in prayer and you're praying for someone, and what comes to your mind is something that, that, that... They need. And you go up to them and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know I've been praying for you. Or um, I wanted to to, to let you know I I, I was praying about your circumstances and I came across this verse or the Lord laid this on my heart and I wanted to share it with you. All of that would fall under this idea of prophecy and it's the idea of edifying the body. And so we see this back and forth here talking about the necessity of distinction, of clarity, how tongues is actually an inferior means by which to uh, operate within the body of Christ because within tongues there is a, a lack of edification that unless there is an interpreter, there is no edification save the person that is doing the speaking himself and that even with an interpreter there is a layer of difficulty as it relates to relaying edification so that Paul says he would rather speak uh, five words in his own tongue than uh, 10,000 words in an unknown tongue to the body because he feels as though he could get more value across in five words in his native language or in the native language of the hearers than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Um, And then that kind of got us uh, off on a little bit of a, well, what do we believe about tongues? Um, And so we talked about our actual, where we stand as it relates to speaking in tongues within the the, the scope of this age. And we talked through that a little bit and uh, settled what I believe the Bible teaches on this. And what we do settle down to as we compare Scripture with Scripture And particularly, um, Paul says here in verse 22, Tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Prophesying serveth uh, not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So Paul said two things here. First, that tongues are a sign. So tongues are not actually, were not actually intended in the body to function as a regular edifying function in the church. They They were intended to function as a, as a signatory uh, element of the church, to, to show a sign. And then we say, well, a sign unto whom? Well, to unbelievers. That's very clear here. So a sign is, uh, it's a sign to unbelievers. And yet Paul would also say, um, maybe it was before that. Hmm. 
Yeah, I guess this is the next verse. If therefore the whole church come together into one place and also speak with tongues and there come in them that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? And so this is interesting too because he just said that they're assigned to unbelievers, but then he says, but if you're all speaking in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, they're going to think you're crazy. And so... What do we do with this? Well, then we continue to compare Scripture with Scripture. And we find that the time that tongues began was at the, on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Paul connects what happened on the day of Pentecost to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, whereby God said that, that um, there would be this time where the young men would prophesy and the old men would dream dreams. And then he also connects here um, to... Uh, Isaiah 28, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me say it the Lord. Well, here's the thing. Believers have heard him. So it's obviously not the people that are the believers who will hear tongues and not, not receive the Lord. Who is this people? Well, it's Isaiah speaking. Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel. So between the fact that Isaiah is writing here saying that God will speak in other tongues to his people Israel and Acts chapter 2, which connects to Joel chapter 2, which is a prophecy of God working and, and telling his people, the nation of Israel, when the last times would begin, we find then that if tongues are intended to be a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, and that they are intended to be a means by which to prove something, well, who, who, unto whom? Unbelievers, but more than that, to Jewish unbelievers. It was intended to be something in the early church as a sign that God was now working through this group that is the church rather than through the nation of Israel, so that in, in many cases, as we would see here in Isaiah 28, it's actually intended to be somewhat of a rebuke to those in Israel who refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, that the manifestations of the fulfillment of Isaiah 28 and of Joel chapter 2 are being realized in the Gentile world, not among the Jews. Even though these are prophecies to the Jews of the end times and validating that what God is doing in these last days, He is doing through the Christian church, not through Judaism. And so that's what tongues is about. To that end... We concluded that as a general rule, we would not believe that tongues is a valid expression in the church today, specifically because God has already done the work that he needs to do through tongues. He has already testified to unbelieving Jews that God is working through the Christian church. And there is not a necessarily a broad brushing function today for us to be proving to unbelieving Jews that God is working through the church. We have 2,000 years of history now to prove that God is working through the church and not through Israel. Now, as we say that, though, the other thing that we mentioned is that that does not mean that God cannot use tongues. does not mean that God cannot give someone the gift in a certain circumstance for any reason that he would deem that he would desire. We are not going to put God in a box and say, therefore, God cannot use tongues anymore or does not use tongues anymore. Uh, we would not expect that he would use it in the Western world where we have the word of God in our language uh, well and properly translated. But I would not necessarily it would not it would not throw me for a loop. If we ever had some missionary come back and say, God gave me some supernatural capacity to communicate or, under, or, or to understand in a way that my measly brain would not actually be able to do. I'd say, okay, good. Praise God. I'm glad that that happened. That's wonderful. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't concern me a bit. Because God is not limited and God is certainly able to do what he will and desire to do anywhere he wants, at any time he wants, in any manner that he wants within the scope of his character, right? Okay, so that was a quick review because there were some people that weren't here last time and I wanted to kind of lay that foundation. Any, uh, are, uh, do, do we need to spend any more time on that? I, I'm, and I'm fine doing so. If, if we need to kind of run down that rabbit hole again, um, that, that's fine. Anybody need more time on tongues or concerns, confusions, anything of the sort? Okay, so then, this is interesting, right? Because Paul is speaking of this idea of tongues. And so then he says in verse 26, How is it then 
brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. So basically what was happening in the church here, and this is very indicative of if you think about 1 Corinthians 11, if you think about 1 Corinthians 12, this was a competitive church. All of these people wanted to be the most godly and wanted the most manifestations of the most godliness and they were comparing themselves with one another and they were, they were literally competing with one another to be the most godly. And so everybody came every week with something that God was doing in him so that they could look godly and be godly and everything else, right? And they had to look the part and sound the part and they were all coming and instead of just edifying one another, they were competing with one another. That's not healthy. It's not godly, it's not virtuous, it's nothing of value. He says, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three. Not, you don't have to spend six hours having everybody speak in tongues. And then he says, and let one interpret. So again, he's not precluding here the fact that at this time, they were still speaking in tongues. We know that they were. But he says, you don't need to just pile on every week. Not everyone has to say something. You don't have to get your word in. Let's just edify each other, Right? And then he particularly says here, let all things be done unedifying. And he says, if there's no interpreter, notice this, let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. You want to speak in tongues? You don't have someone to interpret? Just keep your mouth shut. Go home, whatever. Speak to yourself. Speak to God. You want to do that? You do that. The Lord has given you the gift. You want to manifest the gift? You manifest the gift, but not in the church. Because there's no functional purpose for you to do it in the church, except to try to elevate yourself above your brethren. Let the prophets speak two or three and let, a, let the other judge. And so this was something that happened again. You say, well, pastor, we don't really do this today. Well, on song and testimony night, we do. Um, and we, we, we have this sort of an idea. People get up to edify the church with the things the Lord is teaching them. And that's good. And there are other churches that have this a little more formalized, particularly like a midweek service where they'll have two or three men maybe uh, get up and give like a short devotional of the things that the Lord has been uh, teaching or doing or whatnot. And, and, and those are people that are attempting to conform a little bit more literally to what's being said here. But remember that our examples in the early church, whether that be in the book of Acts or say in the book of First Corinthians, I'll describe it this way. They are descriptive, not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is Paul is not commanding to us, the readers, as to what church must look like. Rather, he is, say, he is telling them what church, how, how to go about doing what church the way they did church. Women wear head coverings. Do it this way. Prophets are going to speak in the church. Two or three. Do it this way. Do these things. And, and the focus, the focus of the women's head coverings is our women need to come in with a spirit of submission. The focus of the prophets by two or three, tongues by two or three is let's make sure that what we're doing is edifying and we're not competing. We're not, um, we're not uh, distracting ourselves from what we're supposed to be doing here. And so the functional use of the body is edification. And that's what we draw from this. Whether we assume this model of having two or three men every week prophesy or whether we continue along the model that we have where I get up and I teach and I moderate a discussion at times. The point is this. Let all things be done to edification. Decently and in order. In a manner that's clear so that if somebody were to come in so that we're edified and then if somebody else were to come in they would be edified too. He says, and if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let him first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn. So, you know, this is the idea that somebody's halfway through their, their exhortation and someone gets up and says, oh, I've got something to add to that. And now we've got this chain of people and no one's able to finish their thought because everyone's popping up with things. Nope, let him finish his thought. And then if you want to get up next, you know, and that, that works, that works. Um, and then, of course, he does say here that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. The idea here being that um, there is the recognition of edification, 
of decency and an order, and of accuracy as well. And of course, that's one of the things that he's already said, that let people speak and let the others judge. So if somebody says something that is out of turn, that is not accurate, it's a good time to get up and say, nope, I disagree with that, and, and this would be why, that, because the Bible says this, right? Um, so that's the final little bit here before we get into the command of women. Any questions or thoughts on this? Nathaniel. Yeah, but in verse 31 it says, for all may prophesy one by one. So we're not talking about him jumping up into the middle of the thought. It's this man prophesies and then this man prophesies. And now the first holds his peace. So he's not going to ramble on. Yes. Not, not to be controlled for the whole time. Right. But then simultaneously, you're not, it's going to be a one by one. It's not going to be um, fragmented. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good. Other... Thoughts, questions, concerns? I've seen the fighting go on uh, when it's in dispute as to who is to do the prophesy. It doesn't go to the government to say anything in what either wants to do. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, it, it is very important that. So, so the Western church is a very formalized church. Um, different cultures do church in different ways. And they ought to be able to do churches, church in different ways. Um, the Western church does not well handle this more, this more rhetorical way of, of... So, if you were to... Um, what Paul is describing here about how Corinth did this is very... If you were to read Socrates or Aristotle or Plato and you were to read how they went about conversing you would see this sort of an idea where men sat around and they, you know, in, in, in the case of Socrates, employed the Socratic method of asking questions and answering questions, of going back and forth in order that everybody is learning as we're asking and answering questions one of another. And that's not necessarily, there are places where the Socratic method is well used in our society, but that is not necessarily something that is culturally um, how, how, how Americans or the Western world um, would operate. The Western world has tended to operate on a little bit more of a one-man disseminating information sort of a model. Very similar to a Judaistic model, actually, the rabbi model. So um, what Paul is reflecting here is actually not so much a Jewish model, which also is reflective a little bit more of how the Western world has derived, but a little bit more of the Greek model. And hence the back and forth, one by one, this sort of an idea. Um, and so once again, we see some cultural things here, but the point is, it, if it becomes confusion, then no one's edified, right? And, um, and the more you have interaction, the more humble we all have to be, because there's going to be disagreements, at which point they cannot turn into arguments or else we're not being edified. Now, I've said many times before, particularly in the Sunday school setting and in the Tuesday setting, that it's, I, I, I like I appreciate disagreement because if we're all simply in an agreement, then we're not really learning. We're just echoing each other, right? So there's value in disagreement. There's value in challenging. There's value in asking questions. These things have value. Um, uh, Sunday school, Kimberly brought up uh, uh, a verse in, our, in 2 Kings chapter 2 that uh, as I read it, I read it incorrectly based upon what the Hebrew text was, and we were able to get that corrected and clarified. Important to do that. We want that in the church. And certainly because, especially when you're a kind of a top-down teaching model, no man is infallible, and so we have checks and balances to make sure that we are all going in the right direction. And that's the essence of what Paul is saying here. Now, what's interesting is this is within this context that we get verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, 
We have seen this word silence and we have seen this word speak in this context already in the context of what? Speaking in tongues. That's right. In the context of speaking in tongues. And so we will not divorce these two verses from the context, but instead allow this to rest in the context. So we look in verse... um, Um, 28. So, verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. This is the same word, silence, that we see in verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the church. So it is not just the women that are to keep silence in the church. It is also the men who would desire to speak in an unknown tongue but not have an interpreter. That is also to keep silence in the church. And so what we find here, and it's not just also, and we see here the word speak, not just speaking of unknown tongues, but also prophesying. And so we recognize here, as we continue then, they are, to be under, they are not to speak, but to be in silence and to be under obedience. And so the essence here, and we'll see this as we see it reflected in 1 Timothy 2 as well, is that the exhortation is that men are to keep silence if they do not have a method by which to functionally edify the body, authoritatively edify the body, and women are to keep silence in the function of authoritative edification of the body. That that's not their role. It is not their role to do so in an authoritative sense. And then we say, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the assembly. And um, hang on just a sec. Let me uh, double check on that. Um, I think I'm going to address that when I get to um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, oh no, it's right here. Let them ask. Um, so if they will learn anything, and this word learn here is, is just the standard word for learn, but it says if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Now this is very important. This is not the typical word for ask, like to ask a question. If you were to go through the Gospels and, they were, and, and you were to see the disciples asking Jesus a question, you would not see... This word here. This is the word eperotao. And you see there, if, uh, if you're, if you're um, following kind of my program here, eperotao means to ask for, to inquire, or to seek. That's the way it is in, in the Strong's. However, it actually has a, a, a significantly different flavor to it than the typical word for ask, which is the word aiteo. That idea of asking, aiteo, is when somebody asks a question of another in authority and they are seeking for information. Eperotao, the word that we find here in verse 35, is never used that way in the text. Let me to- show you to some, uh, some other places where this word eperotao is used. We see it in Matthew 12, verse 10. Um, in Matthew 12, 10, uh, we'll start in verse 9. When he departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had... His hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Now, if they were asking a question for the purpose of accusing him, was this a submissive asking? Were they asking to gain knowledge, or were they asking to box him into a corner? They were asking to box him in, right? Because they were seeking for a way to accuse him. This is that same word here for ask. They were not coming and saying, Master, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? They were saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? They were looking to box him in. They were looking to catch him. They were looking to accuse him. This was an authoritative demand. This was a demanding of him. This was an accusatory idea. It was an accusatory question, not a submissive question. Can we put it that way? Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Here it's that word, desired him. 
So in this case, once again, we see the idea that they are tempting him. Show us a sign. They were not submissively coming and saying, Jesus, we'd like a sign that proves that you are the Messiah. They are tempting him. After, after 15 chapters of signs and wonders, they are coming and saying, prove it. Prove yourself. This is a demand. This is, a, 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 this is a, an accusatory demand. This is not a submissive request. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 22 and 23. When they had heard these things, these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up his seed. And then they go through that parable of, well, you have a man and, and, and he, seven brothers and he dies and then the wife marries the next and, and, then the, and then he dies and the wife marries the next and then eventually she dies also. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? What they, were, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And they're asking questions about the resurrection specifically to try to trap Jesus in a, in a conundrum that he could not answer to lower his credibility. That's the word here, ask. Once again, it is a demand. It is, it is disingenuous or it is demanding. It is not humble and submissive. And so we see these examples. Okay, so we come back to 1 Corinthians 14 then. And so when we see this idea, let the woman keep silence in the church. All right, so, so don't speak in the manner that Paul is teaching in this chapter as it relates to speaking in tongues and prophecy, authoritative prophecy unto edification in the assembly. It's not permitted unto them to do this thing, but they're commanded to be under obedience. So they are to be in the assembly in a posture of, we've already talked about it, submission. Hence the head coverings. Hence the teaching on that. That was 1 Corinthians 11. We're in 14 now. So he's already covered this. And if they will learn anything, this does not mean that women aren't allowed to learn in the assembly. This doesn't mean that women aren't even allowed to ask questions in the assembly as it relates to Asking legitimate, humble, submissive questions to clarify points of order. But this is them asking eperotao style. Demanding. This is trying to back, trying, trying to, to, to box your teacher into a corner to make him look bad or to elevate your authority and, uh, and your knowledge over him. This is the idea of openly questioning uh, the accuracy of an authority publicly as a woman in the church. And this is something that it is not permitted for women to do. And we'll, we'll uh, see how that works a little bit clearer in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So the idea here, the command for those without an interpreter to keep silence in the church or to speak for himself doesn't mean that that man could not ask a question in church or say hello to someone in church. It just means that he should not be speaking in tongues in church if he doesn't have an interpreter. And we see that same idea here. Under certain conditions, men were forbidden from authoritative teaching in the body while everyone else judged. Women are, under every circumstance, forbidden unto authoritative teaching in the body. There's no prohibition to asking questions in a submissive, inquisitive way. There's no prohibition against answering questions in a submissive and, and uh, um, uh, matter-of-fact way. There's no prohibition from being part of the service, only having authority or exercising authority or elevating oneself to a position of authority in the service. And so if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Let them, if they have a point of contention of correction, of and 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 that's not to say that that um, you won't have that, right? That's not to say that there's not a woman in here that's going to be sitting here listening to me, and then saying, "Pastor was pastor just said something and that's not right because I'm connecting the dot to this verse and that verse and it says this there and I just didn't think about it. I didn't connect those dots and that's absolutely fine." Um, 
but the idea of authoritative questioning. Even when Kimberly asked her question on Sunday, what she did is say, Pastor, what's the original word there? And when I pulled up the original word, it became apparent to me immediately that I was wrong in my initial interpretation. That was a submissive way of bringing about a, it was a, 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 a submissive and genuine question that brought about the disparity that she was considering. A proper way to ask a question in the assembly. As opposed to, Pastor, I disagree. Pastor, you're wrong. That's something that is not for women to do in the assembly. You want to whisper to your husband? Tell pastor he's wrong? Okay. Then pastor can say, hey, you're wrong. That's, that's uh, appropriate. But it is not an appropriate disposition for the women in the assembly. And that takes us to 1 Timothy, but before we, we, we run to that, um, to, clear, to round out the teaching on this, thoughts, questions, concerns? Nathaniel? Mm-hmm. So in a sermon context, the way that we are designed, of course, there's no, there is no place for anyone to, for an immediate correction. That's where you come to me afterwards, and then I make the correction the next time I get up in the pulpit, and I publicly make that correction. Um, in the Sunday school and the Tuesday night, that's the time for it. Absolutely. And I've been corrected before, and there's been disagreements before. Um, and that's now, and, and what, what I say here is that um, uh, it's not easy for anyone that's sitting there to, to, to contend with me because, number one, I have the microphone. Number two, I have the pulpit. Number three, I have the elevated position. So there is a, actually a natural and, in a sense, unfortunate um, disparity there of, um, of platform. Right, so that as as anyone here would disagree with me, um, you have you have a you have the ability to to make your point to the extent that I give you the the the, the microphone, uh, I give you the platform, and then I can take as much time as I want in rebuttal, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, right? So that's where you would have to trust me to be humble enough to admit if I'm wrong, and if. I'm not humble enough, then at that point, I'm not going to get much disagreement anymore, right? And, and I say that there's generally only two reasons why a person doesn't have questions. Either I was absolutely clear or I'm so unclear that a person doesn't even know what to do with what I'm saying. But actually, there could be the idea of even when pastor's wrong, he's never wrong, and he's just going to find all of the reasons He's going to find every loophole and he's going to go through every, he's going to bend over backwards and play a game of Twister with the church to prove that even though he said something absolutely wrong, he's not wrong about it. And that's where, if that, that would be on me. Um, and that would be where my, you know, my hope would be then that somebody would come up to me uh, in, a, in a private session and say, hey, pastor, you say you want people to ask questions and bring disagreements, but when you're wrong, you never admit it. And that's why we're unwilling to do that because it's just going to be an argument and there's no edification in that. At which point then I'd have to decide what I'm going to do with that. And if, if, uh, if I'm not willing to go in a different direction, then it's just going to be quiet, right? Then people aren't going to disagree and they're just going to walk away and say, well, we all disagree with pastor here, but pastor is not going to be convinced of anything else. And Lord willing, that's not the way it is. But... Um, so in our, and different churches have, have a different way to do this. In our forums, based upon how things are now, if we grew, things might have to change and whatnot. But Tuesday nights and Sunday school, those are forums where open disagreement is, is fine and, and, and questioning and those sorts of things. In the other two forums, the Sunday morning and Sunday evening, you'd have to do that after the fact. Um, and then I'd have to correct it later um, if I am indeed incorrect about something, which has happened before. I've made corrections from the pulpit before. It will happen again. 
Um, I've had to apologize to the church several times in the pulpit before. Uh, Lord willing, that won't happen again because that's miserable. But, um, but it could, right? Um, but the, women, the women, women should not be the one doing that. And there have been a couple of cases where it has happened. Uh, one of them, there was, ended up being a, 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 a relatively public rebuke. Um, that was the Rogers' first time uh, visiting us, actually, where that had to happen. Um, and then um, the second time, it was a, pri- uh, it was a private rebuke um, that I had to go and talk to the husband and um, say that his wife is not welcome to speak in that manner in the assembly. Um, and that was got to be an educational opportunity. Um, and, of course, the reason for the public rebuke would be the extent to which, if there's a reflection that I feel as though the, the assembly would... If, if the assembly needs to hear the rebuke, then it would be public, right? If I feel as though the assembly doesn't need to hear the rebuke or that there is not a... Um, or the person does not have enough standing in the assembly. So, so, so if the person doesn't have much standing in the assembly, then everyone listening is going to dismiss that. And then I can just go to that person and say that's not how things are done because of what the Bible says. If the person has standing in the assembly, though, then there has to be a, okay, if there are young people that look up to this person, respect this person, and they're speaking this way to, to the man behind the pulpit, then there needs to be a public correction of that and a public acknowledgement. What else? Bill. Right. And they can, they can see right through, you know, what I'm up to. Yeah. And, and I have to be careful with that. Because, um, it, uh, I think what uh, the conclusion here is, and that verse, is that we are in the Confusion, the, the functional purpose of the assembly is not confusion. And whether that be through tongues or whether that be through just so many people saying so many different things, um, you know, it can be difficult. Um, sometimes you get a young preacher and he'll just want to preach everything he knows in one sermon. And it's like, there's t- things that don't relate to each other that he's talking about in the sermon, and it's confusing because there's just so, there, there's, you know, one thing's not really connecting to another thing, and it just all kind of is a mishmash. It's like a, it's like a you know, a, a, a goulash of, of biblical truths that may all be valid, but you can't take anything away from it because it's just disorganized, right? And if, if it's, if it's, disorganized operation in the body, disorganized function in the body, disorganized um, uh, um, questioning in the body, or disorganized uh, prophecy, presentation in the body, all of these things foster confusion rather than edification and of peace. And the body is intended to be a place where you come, you learn, you grow, we love one another, and we go. And that doesn't mean that there there are, that, that, there aren't going to be disagreements or those sorts of things. They just have to be handled in a manner that is appropriate so that the body can still come and be edified and we can disagree in a forum, in a different forum. Um, we can uh, allow some of those, uh, th- those other elements that might be a little bit more confusing in another forum, right? Good, yes. Peace and edification. Anything else? 
All right, let's quickly go to 1 Timothy then, and we'll round out this teaching, and then next time we will begin our thoughts on, okay, now that we've got the context for um, submission and shamefacedness and silence, now let's say, what does that mean for what the women do in the assembly and what that looks like? But 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, uh, we've already talked about verses 9 and 10. In like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So we see the same idea here, and it, this time Paul, uh, well, Paul interprets himself last time too, you just have to make sure that you're reading it in context, right? Um, but this one is a little bit easier in the context. He says, let the women learn in silence, and then he, he uh, expresses or he elaborates on that idea by saying, Women are not to teach or to usurp authority over man, but to be in silence. That contrast there says that the two contrasting ideas are usurping authority and teaching or silence. So again, it's not saying women can't ask questions, women can't contribute a testimony, women can't give a, uh, of, of, of what, what you know, they, they've learned, that women can't do those things, but, they, but the silence that they're supposed to have is that they are not speaking in a manner that usurps authority or teaches in that sense in the body. And we, um, we dispose ourselves to this in different ways within any given church, right? Um, within, and we'll, we'll talk more about this as we get to what women do do in the assembly, but... Um, and it, so in allowing female contributions, asking of questions, these sorts of things, we are making ourselves more vulnerable to the possibility that a woman steps outside of submission. And to this end, there are families and churches who have said the women are not going to ask questions at all in the assembly. They're not going to contribute in the assembly. They're not going to um, pray in the assembly. They're not going to do these things. And the reason why they've done that is not, at least in that first generation, is usually not the idea that they say women should not do this at all, but they say if we allow for this, it's going to be very difficult for us to properly enforce if it starts to not go right. In other words, when that, when that woman many years ago um, effectively rebuked me in the assembly, um, I had to then publicly address it, and that was awful. And a part of me, as the, the pastor of this church and this church, allowing for that interaction is that the leaders of the church have to have the moral courage to do what needs to be done if someone steps outside of submission. And so it'd be a whole lot easier for me to say, well, in so that I don't have to exercise the moral courage to publicly rebuke someone, we'll just tell the women to be quiet. That's one solution, and it's a valid solution, but it also, and this is the same thing that we talk about when we talk about uh, like standards, right, in our own lives. If, if, this, uh, if, if this pulpit, right, is the cliff of sin, and my goal is to not fall into sin, I can put my fence right on the edge, or I can put my fence way back here. If I put my fence right on the edge, then I have the maximum liberty within which to live, and within that, I have maximum capacity and, 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 and flexibility. But I know that if I fall out of discipline and I step over that fence, I'm into sin. Now, what I might choose to do instead is back up my fence a little bit. And in backing up my fence, I am actually withholding from myself land that is mine by God's by right to, to, to enjoy. Area that's, that's mine by right. Choices that are mine by right to live in. But I'm doing so so that when I step over the line in a time of weakness or a time of sorrow or a time of, um, of confusion, I'm not stepping into sin. I'm stepping into a buffer zone of liberty, right? Now, of course, the danger then becomes that with my children, we've got the line set back from the cliff and my children start to see the line that I've set, that fence, as the cliff, so that when they step over the fence of our choices as it relates to liberty, and they step into a liberty that they are not normally operating in, they feel as though they are sinning when they are not. 
And that's how the church can fall into, or an individual or family or whatever, can fall into legalism when they start to judge their fences as the, the cliff. And on the other end, of course, a family or a church can fall into licentiousness when they place that fence so close to the line and people start stepping over that line. And they say, well, people are stepping over the line, but we don't want to step on anyone's toes, so we're just going to allow for some wiggle room, a buffer, a buffer. But see, the problem is, is you didn't build a buffer in. So now your buffer is sin, right? And that's where the church falls, or a family, or an individual falls into licentiousness because you're living in maybe a buffer, maybe not as bad as the, as the neighbor or the church down the street, but it's still sin. And it can be the same thing with this. You know, we can say, okay, women do not speak in the church at all. But in doing so, we have withheld the ability for the women to have something which is theirs to have in the assembly. Or we can butt right, right up against that line. But if we do so, then when someone steps over that line, again, the leadership of the church has to have the moral courage to, to speak to it and correct it, which is not an easy thing to do. And uh, Paul here appeals to the forming of Adam first, then Eve, that's headship, so showing headship, that the, that the man is head over the woman, and then that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And this showing that God has designed women unto a different end. He has not designed women to be the leader, to be the authority, to have that place. And uh, that is particularly because, as is expressed here, the idea that women tend to be um, more... Emotive, more empathetic, and so there is this tendency among women who are who, who step into leadership to allow their compassion to override objectivity, to allow empathy to override objectivity. And this is a wonderful thing that women have that compassion and that empathy. And of course, we're broad brushing here. All, all women are different. But that being said... As a general rule, this is a, a, a common and a, a very safe generality. That women being uh, more empathetic, being more emotive, having that by God's design, were not built to be leaders and teachers. And they are more susceptible, actually, to being drawn away by those who would seek to draw into emotional arguments and... Um, empathetic ideas rather than into truth. And actually, this is one of the primary functional problems in the broader church today, that the church is very feminized, and it is run on empathy and emotion rather than on truth and reason. Uh, and we, and we, we would recognize that to be a feminized church. And it's also why we don't have men in the church is because men sit down and all they get is a church that is almost specifically geared toward women. And that is something that men struggle with, to sit and, and uh, be in, a, in an institution that is almost ex explicitly geared toward um, the nature of women. And so that, that's the idea here that he appeals to, to say that women are not to be teachers or authorities in the church. And next time, uh, we'll, we'll start working through what women's roles in the assembly, and we'll begin right here with verse 15, and we'll, we'll explain um, what this means here about her being saved in childbearing. So we'll get to that next time. But as far as this final idea here of um, silence in the church, what it means that a woman is to be silent in the church in those two passages in which it's spoken, uh, both speaking of authoritative questioning or authoritative teaching or usurping of authority in the church, um, and that is the context for both of them. Are there any questions, concerns uh, about that before we wrap it up? Okay, good. Then we will, uh, we will be finished there for this evening and continue next week. We'll see how long it takes to get through uh, the various roles of, of the women in the assembly.